Hey, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, more on Russia and Ukraine. So we've all been watching with sort of increasingly ominous signs, Putin's positioning vis-a-vis Ukraine and the efforts by the West to try to like come to a certain sort of negotiated settlement. Um, we've reported on this podcast before about how it's hard for people who follow the news to sort of get a sense of what's happening because there's sort of competing stories. You know, Western intelligence agencies are saying one thing, the Russians are saying other things, and it's hard to get a sense of what's happening on the ground. So it's really critical that we talk to people who have been there. I'm really happy to be joined by Eleanor Beardsley, who's NPR's Paris correspondent, who's been following the negotiations between President Macron and Putin as they try to come up with some sort of settlement. You remember this exchange between Putin and Macron because there was this hilariously ginormous table that they sat on the opposite ends of. But actually, I remember Eleanor's reporting from that because I remember and well, first, Eleanor, welcome. Hello, Kyle. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming. I remember your report clearly because you said something. You had apparently talked to some Macron advisors after their meeting, and you said something in your NPR report, and you said that they reported that Putin seemed, I think the word you used was hard. Is that right? Yeah. Do I remember that right? Yes. Um Macron had said that after the meeting that he seemed different from the Putin he had met in the summer of 2019 at his summer presidential resort on the Riviera. He said he was much harder and uh, and he said he he had it like a bunker mentality. What other kind of color did you get from people who were traveling with Macron about that meeting and about their reading of where Putin sits? Well, uh, apparently the the foreign minister, Jean Le Drian, just had to sit in a little room to the side for five hours, five plus hours. And I mean, just that room and that table was so cold and so huge and just, I mean, it it was another century, you know? And people were saying that, I mean, if that's what Putin thinks is normal, God, he is he, you know, you, you hear these things that he's he's isolated because of COVID. And I'll tell I have an update about that table because of COVID. And so just just the optics of seeing that table in that room and that was just so surreal. It was like and then I guess the, the next day Macron met with the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, and it was just they were standing by each other. They seemed like two Western leaders who could talk and he just, it seemed so normal. I mean, it just seemed like night and day. And then, yeah. So people who, who, who had been traveling with Macron, I was on a, you know, a WhatsApp chat with the Elysee. And so there were, we got like the inside scoop and um, yeah, I mean, Macron, it was very hard. That press conference with Putin, he was struggling. You could see it because Putin, I mean, I was watching it and I don't speak a word of Russian, but you know, I was listening to the interpretation, but I mean, he, he was raving about NATO. He, he was saying things like, if Ukraine gets in NATO and then you decide to try to get Crimea back from us, there's going to be a war. And like, nobody's thinking that that's going to happen. Nobody. And, and it's just, it was, he was kind of ranting. And so it was kind of, um, it was almost cringeworthy. I mean, Macron was trying to make it sound like they had had some progress and and then we heard afterwards that, yeah, he, the man that Macron met, you know, was a different person from three years ago. And 
you could see that almost in the body language. Yeah. On the table, um, the, the the table was because I, I what you you were you were giving an update. I mean, what happened right was that um, yeah. Macron didn't want to get the, a COVID test. So yeah, so we we found out actually after the fact that the reason for that table was because Macron, who had had a COVID test before getting on the plane, and of course is triple vaccinated, they asked him to take a test in Moscow, and it's unclear whether it was at the airport or at the and. And he refused because it would have been another two-hour wait for the results. So, um, and they had no time. And as it was, they finished at like one in the morning and he was five hours later flying to Kiev. So anyway, he said no, but so that's why he got the long table. The president of Kazakhstan got, got a nice short table because he had the COVID test. Cozy table, yeah. Although I have seen reporting indicating or suggesting that Macron didn't want to give his DNA to the Russians. Yeah. Is there anything to that? I, I really don't think so. That was, uh, I'm on this WhatsApp chat with the Elysee and they keep you really well informed. And that was going around this morning. And um, no, the person from the Elysee said, you know, she she's like, no, he, it was a timing thing. And she said, no, we weren't worried that they were going to put a black bag over his head and you right. know, put a chip in him. And so she kind of made fun of it. And then everybody started saying afterwards, well, you can get the DNA from a glass that someone drank out of. So yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think that that was true at all. And I did see that somebody reported it, which is not in good faith, because I, I don't think that was accurate. Okay. So you um, you were in Ukraine in January? Yes. Yeah, January. Right when the and first then, talks began with uh, between uh, the U.S. and Russia. Right. And I know that you were there previously, um, what, 2014 uh, yeah, or so? Yeah, I was there in 2014. And it was, I, I really was looking forward to going back because it has been a long time and I was there right when it was unfolding. I mean, I was in the east of Ukraine when those town halls were being taken over by the separatists. Yeah. Who a lot of times were like these young guys who were drinking and it was just very bizarre. And so I hadn't been back since then. So what what struck you about the climate now versus then? Well, I went to Kiev, which was about the same. Um, and um, you can't go to Donetsk anymore. The weird thing is I flew into Donetsk in 2014 the airport was gorgeous because they actually ho hosted the Euro Cup soccer mm -hmm. tournament. I think mm -hmm. it was in 2011 or something. And I remember thinking, whoa, my phone connected to, to Wi-Fi immediately, which doesn't even happen at Dulles Airport. You know, I was like, this is amazing. And just, and it was a, it was kind of a nice town. I expected something horrible, but it had all these, you know, little um, pedestrian promenades and people would walk with their baby carriages and stuff. But then I just saw it just go down, down. Now the, the, the airport is a destroyed heap of rubble. It's just mm. so sad. Um, and you can't even go there now. I couldn't go there if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. you, you just can't get through. But what surprised me, so I was in Kiev, and that was about the same. And um, people are, you know, they just get used to living like this. But I went to this city in the east called Kharkiv. Mm -hmm. And at the time when I was there in 2014, people were wondering, will Kharkiv go with the separatists? Because there was this kind of fever, like, you know, everybody in the East was like, the, 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 the Ukrainians are fascists. I mean, I actually changed my mind about the Euromaidan, which we see as a heroic thing that happened. And yes, it was. But the problem was the people in the East saw the president that they liked deposed and they were told that it was fascists who did that. And so and that the CIA was behind it. I mean, literally, people were asking me that. And and, you know, at one point I thought, well, God, who knows, maybe the CIA is behind it. But um, I just realized that not everybody in Ukraine felt the same about that. 
And there was this big gulf between East and West, and there had been for a long time. And um, so I realized, I came to that realization. But um, so Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city, and I went I went this time, and I was like, whoa. I went with my fixer, who was actually from Donetsk. And, and now a lot more people are speaking Ukrainian now. Um, mm-hmm. When I was there, everybody speaks Russian, first of all. I mean, I guess in the far West of Ukraine, maybe they always spoke Ukrainian. But as far as like people in Kiev... You could be persecuted if you spoke Russian the way Putin said that. That is baloney because people mostly speak Russian there, everybody. But now I think uh, my fixer told me it's about half and half and a lot more people are making an effort to speak Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. So we went to Kharkiv and there was a lot of Russian being spoken in the train and it was fine. But I just expected this Soviet city and I expected them to be pro-Russian. And I was stunned because they absolutely were not. And they were so, oh my God. Okay, I remember coming out of the hotel the first morning and first I start seeing all these Indian and African students because Kharkiv is a university town and there's even a statue to them in front of the medical school. Everybody's studying there. And all of a sudden you just think, oh my God, this city's open to the world, yet this guy has his troops on the border in some 19th century fashion, 25 miles from here. It just seemed so bizarre, such a juxtaposition. And the students were not worried at all. And there was like a nice atmosphere to this town and I expected it to be grim and Soviet. And then, you know, I met with this professor and, she, you know, everybody you met with, they were like, we are so pro-Ukrainian. We, we, we are disgusted by it. And as it turns out, the, the separatists, they actually came from Russia. This woman told me, she said, we could hear their accents. They tried to put the Russian flag up over the, on the town hall. And it came down later that day. And she said, you know, we're, we're, we're really disgusted and we speak Ukrainian now. And, and there were all these like anti-Russian things up in front of the town hall, but paying homage to the soldiers who fought. We even went to the, the museum, you know, because I was thinking, how can we show this city, this sort of old museum of Kharkiv? It was like how, you know, it was just kind of like these old ladies working and it showed like the beginnings of the, you know, I don't know, prehistoric times in, in Ukraine. And then whether the whole floor on the, the, the great patriotic war where the Russians and the Ukrainians fought together but there's a whole new exhibit on the Russian aggression. And I, it was incredible. And the, and the museum director wanted to do an interview with us and talk about that and how terrible the Russians were. And he didn't speak to his, speak to his colleagues anymore. So I found this incredible uh, pro-Ukrainian sentiment there. And, and, and I really got this feeling being back that the last eight years have really, people even told me, thank you, Putin, because you are building a Ukrainian nation. And, it, and, and in 2014, it didn't feel like that. And it really did feel like that this time. And actually, my goal is because we I'm listening to NPR and all of our coverage and everybody's kind of saying the same thing about the Russians. And, and I'm like, is there anyone there who actually supports Russia and is not brainwashed or completely ignorant? You know, and I'm, I'm reaching out. I would like to find somebody smart or just informed and who really thinks Russia is a good option for them. And I don't I'm, I mean, I'm even wondering if it ex- I mean, of course, it exists. There has have to be people there. But I don't know. Well, I mean, this must be one of the reasons why Putin is so concerned, just from what you're just, your description that you just had. Yeah, exactly. And I was wondering, he's got to know it. They can't be stupid. But like, when you see how isolated he is, does he know that in Kharkiv, he has no reception? I mean, and this is why when people, when I, I hear what Biden said yesterday, like Americans should leave. And I'm thinking, that's crazy. I mean, when you're in Kiev, there is, I mean, you're, 
there is there is no way the Russians could invade. What do you mean invade? It would be like the Nazis invading Warsaw. Well, then, okay, you got to hold the city and keep the city. And how are you going to do that? You can't. Yeah. It, it's, it's crazy. So, I mean, I have, of course, no idea what's going to happen. And I do see all the troops and you can look at it, all that. But I absolutely cannot put my mind around any kind of invasion. Yeah, and that's I think it's what makes it so confusing to be a consumer of this news. Yeah. Um, because I do think, and I, and I and I want to talk to you about something we've been talking about, which is the kind of like the age of both Putin and Biden, mm-hmm. um, and how yeah, that plays true. in how that plays into how they're seeing this. I mean, it it, it is a very Cold War resonant it situation is. that we're in now. You're right, absolutely. And I just got to wonder, like, and then what do you, have you thought about that, and like how that's affecting? Um, I mean. And, and how that's affecting like a leader like Macron, who's from a different generation, who doesn't view it the same way. Yeah, I mean, the, okay, I definitely thought about it with Putin because I thought he's so, he's in, first of all, Russians are in a total media blackout. They just have their own media. And even in the east of Ukraine, you're just listening to this, you know, brainwashed. People are brainwashed. People who got out describe their family and friends by their as brainwashed. Yeah. So Putin is in that and also in his bubble within that because he's so scared of COVID apparently. And so I did wonder about him. I didn't really think about Biden's age, but I was wondering why is the U.S. doing this? These hysterical warnings and stuff about an invasion could be any day. That's crazy. I mean, it's almost like if somebody were to say they're going to invade Paris tomorrow. That's the way it feels. I mean, it's not comparable. But when you're in Kiev, there is no way to imagine that. It's a normal city. And I think you're right. I think there is something to do. They're from that era. And um, younger people, young people are the same all over and they don't. I mean, I interviewed young people there and they're like, we don't want to fight in a war for what, you know? So it, it seems so old. Yes. Just, just this, this town Kharkiv, when I saw all the young students from the whole world and nobody was worried about just Indians, just students laughed at me. They're like, we're getting a great, you know, learning to be doctors in, in Kharkiv, you know, that was what they were doing. So yeah, I think it is some kind of generational thing, but I also wonder if it's not a U.S. tactic, which, which has been thrown around like to to say this extreme language to keep them from doing anything, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, we had, we had a journalist on from Bellingcat, um, oh, which is yeah. this investigative. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, he, his take was sort of terrifying. I mean, he was like, Putin is completely alien, alienated from his own, even the Kremlin doesn't know what Putin's going to do. Oh, um, yeah. And they, they seem to think he's completely off the rails. Um, that's true and maybe he doesn't know what's going on in ukraine really maybe he thinks there's people there who want him to come but i don't think they i don't think there is anybody he does yeah. and i mean one of the one of the points that they made the, the bellingcat um reporter was that like you know a lot of the stuff that's coming from the west i mean you have to look, really look at like what it, it, it you know this stuff about the false flag operation mm-hmm. these you know this stuff that about like that the that the brits were putting out about how Putin has sort of picked a new leadership in Ukraine that he's ready to install. And yeah. I mean, that was all like, that's its own form of, like, there, there must be a reason why these Western intelligence agencies are leaking this. I mean, it's, it's, there, there must be a motivation there that also needs to be probed. Mm-hmm. I think that anyway. absolutely would do things like that. Um, you see it, you totally would see that kind of stuff in, in the East and, but the thing is, okay, yes, they have the manpower. There's no way they could, yeah, I was thinking replace the government and put this guy, 
I mean, we all watched his video after that. He doesn't even have a seat in parliament anymore. His party is so small, but he's going to be the president of Ukraine. I mean, yeah, it's hard to imagine. And But you just have to wonder, and this is what some Ukrainians interviewed today that I heard on the radio said, okay, he could invade, but he can't do, he can't hold it. He can't do a war. Russia is a poor, a huge, poor country. What are they going to do? Go to, in a massive war and try to take another country? It's not possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you're in an interesting position because you're there, you're reporting on this stuff, but you, you know, you work for an American um, news news organization that, that you know, that is sort of seeped in this, like, we're getting a lot of this kind of Biden stuff. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I know that you don't want to like, yeah, but I'm just wondering if you're like having to say to even your own colleagues, like, look, you know, we got to like, we got to reframe this a little bit or like approach it with a little more skepticism because that's not the way it looks from here. Yes. Do you, do you find yourself doing that? Absolutely. We had that conversation because, okay, from Ukraine and from Europe, it sounds crazy, this talk. And, um, and so, yeah, we've had these talks and everybody, we've had a lot of people going into Ukraine and, and everybody agrees when you're there, it doesn't feel like that. And, um, we have talked about that absolutely that we need to show that, and I almost feel like the Amer- Americans are also, in a way, being a little bit brainwashed. Um, I think there's. I mean, this is all reminding me. So I was um, based in London, working for the Wall Street Journal in the early '90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and I mean, I grew up as a kid of the Cold War. Um, and I had a lot of images in my mind about what the Soviet Union was like. So when I was living there, I traveled to both St. Petersburg and to Russia, and I traveled around, and I walked away from that thinking, that was a joke. Like, this society is barely able to hold itself together. Yeah. Right? And like everything that, and I had this image in my mind of this kind of monolithic, all-powerful, super-functioning place. Mm-hmm. And that is not what I saw. No. Now, this was after the collapse. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, like, was I, was I lied to you know, this whole time about the power of this enemy? Well, I'm and I'm just yeah. having sort of flashbacks to that right now. No, I agree. But I guess they put a lot into weapons. Yes, um, that's true. I mean, they do have a lot of nuclear weapons. and You can't take that away from the they discussion. Do, but are they just, they want to destroy the world because... Um, I mean, yeah, they don't have any power to do positive and to, you know, they don't have business. They don't have, they can't compete with Ukraine. I mean, everyone says this, and I think it's so true. Putin is so, his big fear is having a, a democratic, economically successful Ukraine next to him, not NATO. Yeah. That will just, they can never compete. They're just in no shape. And um, yeah, no, exactly. The country has the GDP of Spain, basically. Spain has 35 million people and Russia has like 130 million people. That's why you, an invasion is impossible to see because then what? Okay. You went in, you sent some soldiers into Kiev and then what? Yeah. What's the appetite um, at NPR for Ukraine stuff right now? Oh, it's huge. I mean, actually I was the first one to go in because I had been there and I really wanted to go back and, um, and our, our Russia, our, our Moscow correspondent also wanted to go, but actually he has the Sputnik V vaccine and that, that's not accepted in Ukraine. Uh, uh-huh. So he actually couldn't go and I could. And, um, and then they just got into it. I mean, immediately. And then I don't know. Yeah. And, and I was like, whoa. And now they're just keeping people there permanently. They've got teams there going in and out. 
Yeah, they've got the anchors going in and out. Anchors going in and out, but everybody does. CNN, everybody's there, at least till, because now they're saying the date could be February 20th, because that's the date that the Belarus operations end and the Olympics end. And so is Putin going to take his troops home like he promised Macron, or is he going to invade? And it just, I don't know, it just seems crazy to me. Oh, wait, I just thought of another insider thing from Macron. Apparently, when Macron was talking to Putin, you know, he'd bring things up. He was trying to make headway, and Putin only wanted to talk about la grande Russie, you know, great Russia, mother mm-hmm. Russia, the history, Russia. I mean, it just paints this, all these little commentaries paint this picture of this guy who's just like stuck in the past. He has this vision of a great, wonderful Russia and Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, and he can't get beyond that. I don't know. I mean, there's something terrifying about that. It's very terrifying. That's why, That's why. okay, then you think, well, maybe he could invade. But still, if he did, it's just going to be hell for Russia. I mean, I don't see how it could turn out good. But here's the thing, though. Um, they could permanently just mess with Ukraine forever. Yeah. Yeah. Not forever, but you know what I mean? They just keep them from progressing and keep them exhausted and the pressure. I mean, Macron told Zelensky... You know, you have your sang froid, your, your just courage in the face of these troops. You and your people is just to be saluted. And it is because they're under so much pressure. And yet, you know, but, but you can't really build your future like that. You can't get rid of corruption. You can't. And you, I swear, when you're in Ukraine, you feel like you're in a Western looking place. The people, you don't feel like you have to look over your shoulder or watch what you say at all. You do what you want. It feels like being anywhere like Paris or New York. And you really feel that. And um, a lot of Ukrainians also told me they've been coming to Europe because the EU did a really good thing. They they did visa-free travel from 2017. So if you're Ukrainian, you can just come to Europe as a tourist. You don't have to get a visa. And a lot of people went and they just, it's really built ties. And you see that forming, but that cannot be fully formed as long as they're having to deal with this, this gaping wound in the East and everything going on. And that Putin could keep up for a very long time. Eleanor, it was great to talk to you. Kyle, it was great to talk to you, too. Thank you so much. Um, You can read our ongoing coverage of um, how people are writing about this at CGR.org. Follow our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 